is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accounts with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Thanks, Lena. Okay, so... Um, Again, speaking to those of you very quickly who are not used to what we do at Redemption, um, when we say we preach through the Bible, um, we, we literally mean we're, we're preaching through the Bible. We're going to pick a book in the Bible, and we're going to go verse by verse in that, um, and it's called expository preaching. What, what we do is we're going to have a gigantic Bible study together, okay? And, and we've done, since we've, we've only been around as Redemption Peoria for a little over a year now, um, we've done the, the Gospel of Mark. That took us almost a year. We've, we've done the Book of Judges, which was exciting. Um, and then we've had kind of intermittent uh, weeks in there where we've done one-off you know, messages or, or whatever it is. Um, but this morning, we're going to take the next eight weeks, uh, this morning starting that eight weeks, going through the Book of Titus, okay? Um, and I'm really excited because there's a lot of stuff that we can hit on. So let me just give you um, a, a brief outline because I think this will help. Um, my kids, whenever they get these birthday invitations for parties or whatever, there's always like the when, where, how, you know, all those things. And I think our first passage, the first four verses we're going to go over is going to give us a, a pretty good overview. Here, here's what I want to say about the book of Titus. These first four verses are actually one of Paul's longest, and I'll tell you who Paul is in a second, longest introductions. And we're just going to go at the introduction of the book of Titus today. Um, so we're going to start with who, then we're going to go into what. Then we're going to go into how, and then we're going to go into why of what these four verses are saying. And I actually want to start with the fourth verse um, explaining to who this is written, okay? So if you haven't already, open your Bible, Titus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4, then I'm going to go back and start in verse 1, just so you can kind of understand briefly who this is. So this is how verse 4 starts. Um, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father <coughs> in Christ Jesus our Savior. So I, let me give you some broad overview. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul, um, in, in your book of Acts, in the book of Acts that you have, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the story of the apostles. It's the story of the church. Well, about halfway through, um, you're going to see, you're going to meet this guy, Paul, whose name was Saul. He was persecuting the churches. Jesus meets Paul um, on this road as he's on his way to persecute some churches. And he basically wakes him up, you know, opens his eyes. And Paul, which was then Saul, has his name eventually uh, name changed to Paul, um, becomes this just juggernaut for the gospel. And he's traveling around planting churches, okay? So we've talked a little bit about this as, uh, if you've been around. He's planting these churches. And as he plants these churches... Once he plants it, he, he goes away, and then he writes these letters. And in your New Testament, that's what these, so this is what, uh, um, uh, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. This is what Corinthians is. This is what Romans is. Peter's writing to churches. Uh, uh, James, whatever it is, that's what the, these letters are after the book of Acts. Now, these letters are what we call epistles, okay, which is a fancy word, oversimplification for formal letters, honestly. Um, we just like to use really fancy words for no reason. Um, these are called epistles. Now, um, three of the letters that, that Paul writes are Timothy, 1 Timothy, then he writes again back to Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then he writes the book of Titus. 
those three books of all those letters that you see in your New Testament are something called the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles, okay? Those letters are specifically written not to a church, okay? But they're written to one man who is pastoring that church. So Paul plants a church, he goes away, and he says, I can't leave this church leadership list. So he puts Timothy in place, or he puts Titus in place to help lead that church. And instead of the letter being written to all of the church, he's writing specifically to this man, Timothy, or in this case, Titus, to kind of tell them how to work all this out. Now, these dudes get confused a lot. Um, if you guys are, you know, theological meatnecks and you were following our website as we laid out what, um, what, is, what happened to Titus is, we actually put something that happened with Timothy as it happened to Titus, which was incorrect. We changed that on the website, so our theology is terrible, but we'll do our best to fix it. Um, we did. So, so Titus is this specific book written to the specific man about how the church works, okay? Now, here's why this is good for us. Because this is written at a time when the gospel is really starting to open up its wings, man. It's really starting to spread. And as it spreads, it's going into places that the gospel's never been. And therefore, church language has never been. Like, you couldn't be like, hey, man, are you witnessing to your friend? They're like, what are you talking about? Like, hey, I'm just on mission, right? Like, hey, dude, like, I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus. No one knows what that means. No one knows any of these Christian cliches that we have. So the gospel's going into these places that are really unchurched. And so what Paul is trying to tell T uh, Titus in this moment is, Here's what the church needs to look like. Now, this is a big deal for us because we um, like, and this is written in, in a place called Crete, we like Crete are in a culture that though we are a Christian slash post-Christian uh, uh, culture, though, though we kind of are, are, are tending towards uh, removing as the Christian being the, the, the dominating uh, religion, um, ironically enough, we have very close symbolism to what's going on in Crete in that we're trying to establish a church when all these various beliefs are trying to pull us in the other direction, okay? So here's what Titus is. Titus is going to very practically tell women their role, tell men their role, to tell moms their role, to tell husbands their role. Very specifically, it's going to talk about what are elders. Next week, we're going to talk about what does elders look like, what does leadership in the church look like. So this book is for us to know how do we operate how should a church of God operate in 2016 in a culture that says, that's dumb, that's stupid, that's not how that should go. We, we get to take this moment for the next eight weeks, and I know this, I, maybe you don't like this language, but work on us. To work on what does this look like. If you're part of this church, what are the practicalities of, of what the word of God would say and put in front of us? What are women's roles? What are men's roles? Um, well, again, what are, what, what are the roles for leadership? Uh, well, and, then, and then at the same time, kind of playing out what is grace? Like we talked about grace. What is that? What is works? Like should we be acting on these things? And so it's going to be really great for us to go through this um, very simply. Now, I want to say this because this is a big deal. Um, and, and this isn't in the book of Titus, but I need you to understand. When Paul is writing these letters, whether it be to Timothy or Titus or to the whole church, this is huge. Please hear this. It is always in the context of community. Now, nowhere in this book will you see the plural you because English doesn't have a plural you. But when he's talking to Titus and he's telling these people, it's not just telling someone or individual. He's talking about community. He's talking about, so for, for us to read this book, we need to read it in community because check this out. It's easy to work on forgiveness outside of community. Yeah, I'm just a forgiving person. Until someone hurts you, bro. Like, think about it. Like, it's easy to be like, well, I'm working on this. Until someone has a, a, a Democrat is in your community and he's pushing against your beliefs, then it becomes real hard. 
Then it becomes real hard because when someone supports Bernie Sanders and someone supports Trump and they're in the same room, that becomes real hard for us to get over certain hurdles, right? So this is in the confines of community saying this is how we operate. This is what it looks like, and we're doing this together, okay? So that's the fourth verse. Let's get at it. First verse, um, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read it again. If you're new, I'm literally just going to read through, um, explain, read through, explain, read through, explain. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the very first verse. Unlike if you were with us with Judges, one, one Sunday we went through five chapters. That is not the case this morning. This is what it says. So again, Paul, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, from the jump, Paul is not just telling us who he's going to write it to in verse 4, but he's actually telling us why he's writing this book. He's giving us the purpose. What is the purpose of this book? Hear what he says. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. We'll talk about God's elect in a second. For the sake of the faith, God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So are you ready for this? Okay. The purpose of this book is for this church, and I would argue um, when an apostle's writing, it's, it's the longevity is beyond just that original context. So for us, this is for our faith. This is why this letter is put in front of us. We are, for the next eight weeks, going to go through the book of Titus for our faith. So our, for our faith, for what? So that we would have knowledge of the truth, and that knowledge corresponds to godliness. So hear me what I'm going to lay out. There are things that we need to know, that we need to conform to, that we need to change. Your views on parenting are not canon. Like, they they are not absolute. Your views on how to be a husband or what you think is right. We as Christians, as a church, from the jump, need to understand there is the knowledge of the truth. That knowledge corresponds to godliness. So, So you have opinions, you have things, but ultimately Paul's going to lay these things in front of us so that we can act on them. Let me explain it a little differently because I have some verses for you. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, it says this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. And he goes on and on and on. But here's what I need you to, to, to hear for this, okay? This is Peter, a completely uh, different guy, writing a completely different book to a completely different group of people. But here's what, here, I need you to understand um, the, the trickle down, the, the dominoes that are going to fall. We are reading the Bible for a purpose. For this reason, make every effort to supplement or to add to your faith with virtue. So you have a faith. You have a faith. You in this moment, if, if you say you're, you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you are a Christian, you have a faith. But check it out. That faith does not just die. It's, it's not something that just ends. Yeah, I believe in Jesus and I kind of do what I want. That is impossible. That is impossible. You have ideas, you have opinions that are forced by the very nature of the word of God to be conformed to Jesus Christ. So no matter what you think on spanking, politically, whatever it is, you have ideas that need to be conformed. Because hear me, you have a faith, make every effort to supplement your faith. Virtue, virtue is right living with knowledge and knowledge self-control. So I need you to hear what he's saying. How do we know how to live right? How, how do we know? So you have, a, you have some views on parenting. Candace and I, when we uh, first had Corbin, um, we, we had long conversations about spanking. What does that look like? And we had these, each had our opinion, right? Of course, my opinion was right, but... Um, so so we, we had these opinions, but, but here's, here's, how, here's what a Christian does, different than maybe cultural, culture does. A Christian goes, I want to live a godly life, 
And so I need to go to the truth. I need to know what to do right. And that is knowledge. So, right, I have virtue. I want to know how to live right. I need knowledge. And with knowledge, I need to be self-controlled to live out what I'm knowing. Do you understand? So the dominoes go, I have faith. This faith makes me want to follow Jesus. The only way I can follow Jesus is to know what is right. The only way I can know what is right is to read it in his word. Once I've read it in his word, I need self-control to stand in it. Once I have self-control, I need steadfastness or patience or longevity. I need to be faithful. So it's not just I have faith, but ultimately I need to live this out. Here's two fancy words for you to understand the book of Titus. Really fancy. Orthodoxy, which is proper belief, always lends its hands or equals orthopraxy, which is right living. Right theology will always lead to right action. Let me give you another verse just in case. Um, I just read this in, in Philippians 1, 9 and 10. It says this. Wait, I just read this with some, some um, buddies. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So again, let's look at this passage. This is my prayer. This is Paul writing a different letter to a different set of people. There's a theme in the New Testament. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more. You want to know Jesus Christ. You want your love to abound more and more. What does it need? With knowledge and all discernment. Let's start over again. I love Jesus Christ. I have faith, but I want to follow him. I don't know how to follow him, so I need truth. So I have knowledge and discernment. Leading from knowledge and discernment, you have this knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Now I know what is right and wrong. Parenting, spanking, political, I'm learning. I have opinions, but this opinion's wrong. This opinion's right. Now I'm walking in this, and I'm moving towards godliness. So, so the train that I'm trying to put in front of you that I think ultimately starts with Titus is this. Let me show you um, a, a quick little thing. Can you put up, uh, I had two little graph things. I don't even know what they are. Okay, so, so if we were to make this an equation, um, let me just show you maybe how some of you are operating compared to what Titus is going to put in front of us. The Holy Spirit's going to lay out a certain way to live a godly life. This is ultimately what it is, okay? Let's start with love. I love God. I mean, geez, there's a lot of Christians. Everyone who claims to be Christian says, yeah, I, I love God. I love God. Okay, we can start with that premise. I'm good with that. That love for God, we need now knowledge to know right and wrong through the Bible. So, so you say you love God, but to you, um, God is a God of justice, and so um, these immigrants or these uh, sinners or these rated R wa movie watchers or these secular music listeners, whatever it is, they need justice. They need to be punished because they're sinning. And that's a God of justice. You have opinion. Yet um, the tree-hugging Christian over here is like, no, bro, God is love. You could do whatever you want. You could, what do you mean like I'm a slave to righteousness? No, I can do whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever. He's my savior, right? Both have opinions. Both love God. The reality is now we need to gain knowledge to know what is right and wrong to follow the real God, to really know who he is. So a cop pulls you over and he doesn't go, you know how fast you were going? I was going, I don't know, 35. No, you weren't. You were going 80. Well, that's your opinion. No, that's not how it works. That's not how you can't, you can't adjust the law how you want to. So we gain knowledge through the Bible. Now hear this. This is what's interesting about this. Because we gain knowledge through the Bible, we act in that way that the Bible is telling us to act and that ultimately equals being blameless. Now, this is a big deal because what he just said, um, uh, um, going back to verse 1, for the sake of the faith and their knowledge of truth, which corresponds to godliness. 
Now, there's a difference. There's a difference than, than some of us um, as, as Christians. We're saying we love Jesus. That's not our ultimate aim. Let, let, me, let me show you what some of us don't even, un, unbeknownst to us, know that what is our ultimate aim. Can you show the next one? Let me show you another equation. So we start with love. In the same way, you, you love Jesus. You love Jesus. He's a great guy. You gain knowledge to know right and wrong through whatever. I, I, honestly, let's just say um, through your parents, through culture, through school, um, through blogs you read, through whatever. Let's just say it's not even, let's not even say it's all bad things. Say you pick up a Piper book or, or Keller book. I don't care. Let's just say it's not all bad things. But you gain knowledge how to be right and wrong. And from that night and ro- uh, knowledge of right and wrong, you act in that way. And guess what? You're a good person. That shouldn't be blameless. You totally ruined this, Josh Miles. Anyway, that last line should not be blameless. It should be be a good person, which now totally ruins everything. I was supposed to be like, wow, you with that last line. But okay. My point is, let me say this. My point is this. Um, I'm not trying to raise good people in my house. You understand? Got four kids right now. I'm not trying to raise good men and women. That's not my goal. My goal is not that Corbin would grow up and be a good person. That's not the goal of the Christian life. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, um, yeah. So, so, so hear me when I say this. That's not the goal. And hear me. Unfortunately, just like the, the church that, that Paul is writing to, that Titus is dealing with, this is the, 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 the kind of moderate understanding. Hey, if you're, you're a good person... You're, you're okay. You're a good person. You do right. You, you, don't, you don't do all those bad things. You're not, you're not a terrible person. Unfortunately, that's not the point of Christianity. It's not. The point of Christianity is godliness. And so when you don't grab from the Bible proper knowledge, you may be a good person. You may live a good life. But that's not the point. The point is not to live a good life, to be a good person. It's to be godly. Now, you may not like that, but that's going to be the first thing that I'm going to lay in front of you as a rub. Let me uh, give you something. Um, The NLT, which is another translation for this verse, says it like this. Um, This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. So we are reading Titus to put in front of you how how to live a godly life life how to live a godly life so let me just pause real quick and and, and break this down um this is going to sound super harsh but if that's not the goal if that's not the purpose if that's not the direction you are going you're not a christian you are not a christian If, if, if your purpose or goal is anything but pursuing jesus christ for godliness for his glory but if it's to um, geez, I don't, I mean, I can think of a million, like if it's to, um, work at a soup kitchen, if it's to get all your ducks in a row, if it's to, to even raise a good family, if those are the purposes, that is not what drives Christianity. What drives Christianity is knowing things to follow him. And if we're not following him, we're not Christians. So why is this important? Because some of you guys have opinions doctrinally on like the Virgin Mary and you might be wrong on baptism, and you might be wrong. You, you have views on how the Trinity works, and, and you might be wrong. I know you have no idea how the Trinity works. 
You, you, you have views on what, what, what music we should sing, or, or you have all these, all these different views. And all I want to put in front of us is there is a way to follow Jesus Christ, which is truth, and leads us to this way. And, and you need to be showing that, okay? Let me continue on if I haven't beat the dead horse yet. Um, I want to read because I skipped over, and I'm sure some of you guys are interested in this God's elect. Here's what's interesting. Um, we don't have to have a reformed conversation. Some of you don't even know what that means. Um, but um, here's what I'm going to say. When you read the verses in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which, of course, which accords or corresponds with godliness, when you read that first thing, here's what's crazy about this verse. Um, it is written to God's elect. Now, what does that mean, right? Again, we don't have to have the reform conversation, but here's, here's what I'm going to say. Whatever you think God's elect is, what's interesting about this is, um, inevitably, you, if you're a Christian in here, believe in Jesus, and your neighbor probably doesn't. Are you smarter than them? Like, are you wiser than them? Like, you, you have a better ability to choose. Is that why you know Jesus? I mean, your family member who you pray, want, you want them to know Jesus. Are you, are, are, are you wiser? Like, did you come to a conclusion? Like, they, you were able to put it all together, and, and they can't? Is there something that you brought to the table? No, the reality is God has done something. He's somehow wired or changed your heart. I don't know what he has done, but at your center, and him doing this, here's what I need you to know. Whatever the reason, God, uh, Paul, or yes, Paul would put God's elect here. Here's what I'm going to say. Instead of thinking of privilege, you need to think of responsibility. So um, a lot of you guys know my, um, my childhood was joyous. Um, and in high school, I was adopted. I was uh, picked up by a family that I lived with, uh, John and Nancy Young. And when I lived with them, I went from, you know, trying to figure out food and, and shelter, you know, whatever, living with my dad and, and mom or wherever it was. And suddenly I'm in a house now where food is on the regular. Um, I'm not worried about like where I'm going to sleep. I'm, we're good. Like I'm not, I'm not tripping on money. I'm not worried about any of that. Okay. Now me moving into that house brought immense amounts of joy, right? Now I have things I never had before. But what also came with that were parents who made sure I did my homework, were parents who made sure I wasn't a slob, so I needed to clean up the bathroom. I couldn't just leave my clothes wherever I wanted. I cleaned up after myself in the kitchen when I was done eating. So all this privilege, uh, now, now before, um, figuring it out, living with drug addict parents, now I'm living in a stable home, it's good, but it comes with responsibility. So can you imagine if Nancy came to me and she said, hey, Sean, um, you need to pick up your clothes in the bathroom. And I went, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I'll stay here, but I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. Like, I, I appreciate the room and all. Thanks for the crab earlier, but I'm good. Can you see how crazy that is? Like, e even I, I think now um, my wife and I, our family is in the process of fostering to adopt. And we have this little baby, and I think if we get to keep this baby, which is our prayer, um, if we get to keep this baby and, and she grows up, I'm like, Anna, here's how we're raised. We're, we're, this, is, this is the things that we do as a family. And she goes, that's cool for you guys, but no thanks. Can you see how crazy that is? So, so here's what I need you to think. The reality of this is God has, for whatever reason, bestowed his grace on you. For you to linger, for you to be apathetic, towards the cross and not act is not an option for you to think that you can just live in God's house and be cool and not be disciplined and not read your Bible and not pray is not an option. Action is inevitable. It is inevitable. If you are a Christian laying on the guilt hard right now, but let me go on because this is a big deal. Um, I think the question, 
And I felt like I had this wrapped real good, but I'm already running out of time. Now, here's the question. If I laid on the guilt, here, here it is. And let me just, if I could sum up my point again. Being a Christian means knowing God to act toward godliness. If you're not doing that, I don't know what to tell you. But, but how do we do this? I think sometimes I can get up here and say, you guys need to act like we need to follow the, the, the Bible. We need to do this. But how do we do this? And I only have one answer for you. And it's not ten ways to get out of debt. It's not five ways to have a better marriage. It's none of that. It is a simple statement. You need to have a mindset change. You need to change the way you think about your Christianity. And here's how I know this. Because the way the letter opens is a guy named Paul saying, Paul, a servant of God. Now, if some of you have a different Bible besides the ESV, I almost guarantee you it does not say servant, does it? Some of your Bibles say slave or maybe even bond slave or bond servant. Now, when I say we need to change our mind about how we view Christianity, this is what I mean. In Paul's mind, there isn't an option. There isn't an option. He's viewing his Christianity as this is how I do it because I am a slave to God. Now, when we think of slavery, we immediately go to colonial slavery. We think of uh, white, white man plantations and black men, but that's not what Paul at all is thinking here. We, we, we have an American version of what slavery is. And I, I, I want to uh, bring you to this because I just did this with some people. Um, if you, you can go there if you want. If not, don't worry about it. We'll put it on the screen. But in Deuteronomy 15, the Bible actually defines some of what slavery looks like. And, and Paul, if you don't know who Paul is, um, Paul had to memorize the first five books in the Old Testament. How awful is that? Okay? He had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it talks about how to treat a slave. Because a slave wasn't someone where we crashed the party, made them subjugate to, uh, to, to us in our ways. No, in some instances, I could owe $100,000 in debt. And so I can go, dude, I owe you $100,000. I can't pay it. I will be your slave or servant for however long. Now, here's what God set in the premise of slavery. He said, at the end of six years, when you're in the seventh year, I want the slavery for that man or woman to stop. And it's called the year of Jubilee. I want everything to go back to zero. So if they owed you $100,000 and they worked for six years and that only equaled $80,000 for their work, it doesn't matter. I, I want to say they're done. They're done. And when that time is done, I want them to be set free. This is actually what he says. Uh, in Deuteronomy 15, we'll pick it up in verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, but... Now, let me just stop before we read verse 16. So here, here's the, the premise. The, the, this dude, this woman, whoever it is, has been a slave for six years. Seventh year, it's time to let them go free. They've worked off their debt. But instead of just kicking them out of their house, give to them. Like, give them a cow, give them a goat, give them a horse, give them money, maybe even give them a house, wherever it is. Give Give away, provide out of what you have, out of your abundance, and give to them so that they can go free. Supply things for them. It's the year of Jubilee. They get to go free. Now, this is beautiful. This, this is, uh, and, and even furthermore, he reminds them, you were a slave in Egypt. Remember that? You were a slave in Egypt. In the same way, they're a slave to you, but they're set free now. But there's something interesting. And I believe this, and I can't prove it to you, but I believe wholeheartedly every time you read the word servant or slave, which is the word, Greek word doulos, it, it means bondservant. It's the same word that is used in this Deuteronomy passage every single time in the New Testament. I almost guarantee you this is the passage 
Paul is thinking about. So for us to think, how do I follow God? How do I not make it an option? In Paul's mind, this is the passage he's thinking about. Because this is what it says. You just said the slave can go free. Picking it up in verse 16. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. And you shall take an owl and put it through his ear into the door. And he, sh- uh, he, shall, he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. So you're free to go, man. It's the year of Jubilee. You've worked off this time. Go. But the slave goes, <laughs> go. Like my kids were raised with your kids. Like I'm in this with you. I, I love you. My family loves you. We're not going anywhere. We, we will serve you the rest of our lives. Now, this, is, this suddenly becomes beautiful, doesn't it? Because the reality is to change our mind and how we become so apathetic about our Christianity. You guys hear me. I'm not trying to be the fire and brimstone dude. But the reality is our biblical illiteracy, our biblical literacy is dropping by the week in America. I mean, I, I'm, and this isn't like a feel bad about this, but if I was to ask, is John the Baptist one of the disciples? Statistics would show, according to Bar- Barna, 70% of people who attend church would say yes. And he's not. <laughs> he's not. That's the answer. <laughs> like, like could, could you name the first five books of the Bible? Now here, listen, that's not, my, my point isn't guilt. My, my point is this. We've treated Christianity so apathetically. That's a word. We, we've treated it so, like, nonchalantly that we're not acting anymore. Have-tos. Like, like, what do you mean? No, no, hear me. The way the Bible describes Christianity is we are slaves. And it is love-motivated slavery, but we are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to Christ. It is, I have an opinion, but my master has another opinion. Now, don't go to colonial slavery. Go to the fact that you've been set free to do whatever you want, but you've chosen to follow him. You've chosen to be a slave to him. This is what's called of God's elect. Now, now let me just, let me, because we've got to wrap this up. What motivates that love? Why would a man who is set free, why would, why would a man who can go free choose to be a slave? I think this is the answer. Let's finally get out of verse 1. Um, let's pick it up in verse 2. So he goes on, I'll read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So this is written to a people who they are slaves for Jesus Christ, but not so that they can get eternity. (laughs) No, no, no. Check it out. You don't have to go out of here and force yourself to read your Bible. You don't have to. You don't have to force yourself to pray. Matter of fact, you don't have to force yourself to come every single week. It's not your church attendance. Some of you guys want to go watch a movie, and you you don't know if you should or not, but it's not whether or not you do. There's there's nothing in this part that that you would say you have to. Hear me when I say this. The reality is none of those have-tos will equal you spending eternity with God. That's not on you. You know how we know this? Because eternity was promised before the ages began for you. He, he, he put this in front of you. Now hear me. This, is, this becomes super sticky because all the legalists in the room are freaking out right now. Okay? The reality is, if you are a Christian, you won't 
Like, that, that's the reality. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know how I just got myself into a lot of trouble. I don't think I'm going to leave here and go start sinning. Um, okay, the reality is, if you are a Christian, you won't. You won't go out and do what you want. You, you would choose slavery to Jesus Christ, but that is not what saves you. What saves you is the fact that God, before eternity, before the ages began, has promised this to you. This salvation is not something that is earned based on your merit. It's something that is given. And you choosing to follow Jesus Christ, wrapped in his blood, that's what saves you. Not your good works. Not your good works. Now that should motivate you. So my hope isn't that I force my kids to love me. You better love me. Give me a hug. Give me a kiss. Now I do that now. Um, but the reality is like that, that my, my goal is that, that as they grow up, they know that no matter what they do, I'm going to love them. And that, that would, my hope would be that they would love me in return because I love them. So this is what God has put in front of you. Hey, listen, girl, you don't have to earn it. If you just trust in me for your salvation, you'll be saved and you're going to fail. You're not going to pray tonight. You're not going to read tonight. You're going to fail. You're going to say some things you shouldn't see. You uh, say you're going to see some things you shouldn't see. You're going to listen to things you shouldn't listen to. And you're going to feel so bad like I don't love you. But that's not the truth. I've already given you eternity. Now that motivates us to love. That is why the slave looks at his master and goes, what do you mean I can go free? With you, life is better. That's what motivates us. That's what pushes us. Let me finish with our last two verses, and then, then we'll get out of here. In hope of eternal life, um, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We're going to get into some of this, but um, here's what's beautiful about all of this, because I think there's a practicality to this. To this. Um, he, is, he is writing to uh, a people that we're going to find out the Cretans believe in gods, these Greek gods who lie. Okay? And he says there, the God who never lies has promised you eternal life. He doesn't lie. Now, Odysseus can lie, Zeus can lie, but the God we serve cannot lie. He will not deceive. He is right. And when he says you have eternal life, you have eternal life. It's done. It's set. He's not going to lie about this. Now, because of that, we work this out. He has manifested this. He has put this in front of you. The word is phonera in Greek. Now, I normally wouldn't lay down the Greek word, but here's why I think this is important. Phonera is where we get our word photos from, photo from. It, um, like the word photosynthesis or photography. All these deal with one little word that we know as light. Okay? And what he is saying now is he has manifested, he has revealed his salvation to you. And so here, as you grow in the Lord, you continue, he puts spotlights. This is how you live. I, I've revealed this, and now even I get a great opportunity to put this in front of you, the passage of Titus through the preaching of God, God's word. For Maybe for the first time you go, I can't do what I want. So I, you understand like how this is working right now. The Holy Spirit is churning within you. This is exactly how God has always planned it. That someone would go a brother or sister, not just me. Someone would go, hey, why do you think it's okay to do that? Like you say, it's okay to sleep around with your girlfriend and God's okay with that. But I'm reading this, this passage in the Bible everywhere. And it's just not like, I, I'm, I'm confused. Why do you think that's okay? And he, like a spotlight, is revealing these things. And in that moment, that knowledge should lead to godliness. That knowledge should lead to action. He is revealed in his word through the preaching, through somebody, kerygma, uh, this idea of somebody presenting or proclaiming to you, here's what's right, I know what's right, and I walk in that way. This is what we're going to get to see in the book of Titus. Now let me wrap up with something. Um, to sum all this up, okay, because this is where it becomes real tricky. Um, uh, J.R. Packer uh, just recently um, 
geez, I don't know, recently, maybe five years ago, had mentioned, he's very old, if you don't know who J.R. Packer is, he's in his 80s, almost 90s now, um, mentioned some cultural shifts that he's seen in Christianity. And I want to put them in front of you because there is a difference than the way the Bible views Christianity and American Christianity. I really need you to understand that. And this is where I'm going to finish. So this is what, what three things that he has noticed, and I want to explain these things to you, okay? Um, J.R. Packer said, um, we've gone as Christians from intellectualism to emotionalism. We've gone from theology to morality. And we've gone from the Bible to Jesus. Now, let me explain what all those mean so you're not confused. This is what we're experiencing, and this is what we have to fight against. We've gone from intellectualism, that is, we know what we believe, why we believe it, and that causes us to act, to what I feel is right. Now, I'm not talking about them, y'all. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about us. What you think is right, how you think it should go, what you feel. So Candace and I arguing about parenting, it was both like, that dude, Corbin, deserves to be punished. Let's spank him, right? And Candace is like, no, let's not do that, okay? Both of us are leading with emotionalism instead of going, God, what do you desire? Now, this is a part of the reason we struggle in our disciplines because I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. And so I'm basing my relationship with God on emotionalism instead of letting what I know trump what I feel. So there's the first shift. The second shift, he says this, we've gone from theology to morality. So we, we've already talked about this, haven't we? It's no longer about how to live a godly life. It's how to live a good life. You're a good person, man. You're not Hitler. I mean, you haven't done terrible things. You, 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 you serve, you maybe give some money. You gave that panhandler five bucks. You're not a bad person. You don't get drunk all the time. All of this is relative, bro. It's all relative. You're deciding what is right and wrong. No one can decide for you because you've decided, and we've gone from theology to morality. It's how to act right. And then this the last one may be the most confusing, but I think it's the most brilliant. We've gone from Jesus, or we've gone from the Bible to Jesus. Now, it's easy in our culture to say, I believe in God, because that God can be anyone. But even in the Christian church, it's easy to say, I believe in Jesus, because we've made Jesus anyone. Jesus is okay with you. Somehow, throughout thousands of years of history, he de- Jesus is not down with you lying or being greedy or, or, or looking at a woman with lust in your heart. But somehow, now Jesus is okay with you doing those things. What a wonderful Jesus you serve. He never offends you. He never corrects you. He never tells you you're wrong. That's amazing. What a wonderful Jesus you serve. And we've gone from the Bible to Jesus. And hear me why this is a big deal. Because the Bible tells us who the real Jesus is. It tells us how he really acts. And when we get lost in all of this, all this flutter, and we don't do what we're going to do for the next now seven weeks when I'm done preaching here, we get lost in some ethereal place that you can do whatever you want as a Christian. So I'll finish with a quote, not by Charles Spurgeon, but a guy named John Owen, who is a Puritan. If you don't know who the Puritans are, everything we're going to talk about, I, oh my gosh, look up the Puritans. They lived in a time where they looked at the church and said, we need to get our game right. They were seeing how the Catholic church was acting. And this it ended from, it went from like the end of the 1500s to even the early 1800s. These guys looked at the church and said, we need to be pure again. They were Puritans, essentially. The purity, the purity of the church needed to be on display. And, and a guy named John Owen was a Puritan. And this is what he said before I pray. He says this, without absolutes revealed by God himself, we are left rudderless in a sea of conflicting ideas about manners, justice, 
and right and wrong, issuing from a multitude of self-opinionated thinkers. So let me just say this very quickly because I love that, that line, we are left rudderless in a sea of conflicting ideas. If you are not reading your Bible, if you are not spending your time with the one who defines right and wrong, you're like a ship, rudderless. You're floating there. And when someone says, this is right, you're like, yeah, that's right. And when someone says, this is right, yeah, that's right. And you become a product of your environment, unbeknownst to you. And slowly but surely, you remember judges, we become just like the Canaanites. We become just like the people around us. And you may not like this next style of eight weeks of preaching, but I'm bringing this beast because we need to wake up. And you're going to feel guilt, but the reality is, like, godly conviction should lead to repentance. It should. It should lead to repentance. And if there's anything that the Bible is going to unearth in you, your apathetic laziness to serving God, I hope that we would wake up motivated by love for the gospel's sake and act. Because we can get lost in these ethereal things. And then he goes on to say this. We could never know who God is and how he is to be worshipped or wherein true happiness lies. If that's the case, if that's the case, if we, we, we are rudderless without a sea, we could never know who the, who the God of the Bible is, how he is to be worshipped, and wherein true happiness lies. It ends on self. We will be lost. If we don't follow this path, even as Christians, we will feel the, the, the sense of disappointment. So for whatever it's worth, I'm going I'm to pray. Um, I'm excited to go through Titus with you guys. I pray that God would wake us up from our idolatry that we have in family, our idolatry that we have of self. Um, leadership, whatever it is. Um, I'm sure God would be good in all of that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Um, We recognize, as you tell us in this passage, that um, we have the book of Titus for knowledge of the truth. And then we pray that knowledge would not just end on us, but it would be like a virus that continues to consume that, that, that this knowledge would correspond, would accord with godliness, that we would act on the things that we know. We know what is right and wrong according to your word, and then we would act on it. And, and what would motivate that action is the fact that we are slaves of you because of love, because you've promised eternity, you've promised eternal life for us. That motivates us. It's not about getting it right. It's not about acting on that knowledge that gets us eternal life. It's you who's provided it. And because of that, we're motivated in the hope of eternal life. We, we know one day we will be made perfect, but right now we struggle and we continue to ask to be shaped, Holy Spirit, in the image of Jesus Christ. Help us. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. We pray, God, that we would be a people who follows it, that we would know the God of the Bible rightly and we would act accordingly. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.